2: <laughs> I was just sitting in my driveway explaining to some family members that we were going to talk to a philosopher today on the show. Uh, a philosopher who's written a book called Life is Hard, which is something my family is experiencing in, in plenitude right now. So I mentioned the title of the book and one family member said, really? How do you figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, our guest today, uh, Kieran Sidia, has some very interesting, very profound, very poetic, and beautifully couched ways of talking about how life is hard, why life is hard, and how we might live through some of that difficulty. So join us for what I hope will be a lovely full show conversation with a very interesting philosopher. Yes. Thank you, Black Uhuru. You're right. Life sometimes does look very bleak. We're going to talk uh, today uh, about how life is hard and why life is hard with a philosopher who has written a book called Life is Hard. How philosophy can help us find our way. This is going to be a show about him, not about me. But I I feel like just to introduce myself to uh, Kieran Setia... um, I have to, first of all, hi, Kieran Sedia. You're with us, and we should uh, fully introduce you, professor of philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, the author of Midlife, a Philosophical Guide. This new book is Life is Hard How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And I believe you're also the host of a podcast called Five Questions, uh, where philosophers are asked five questions. And I believe also in the most recent ep- episode, you were subjected to your own
0: method. That is true. Yeah. So uh, I've been on the receiving end. Thank, thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah. So um, so by way of introduction to me, um, when I first beheld this book, I have to tell you that uh, over the last two or three years, my life has gotten very, very hard. Uh, and my son in uh, July uh, of uh, 2020 was given a terrible diagnosis. I, I don't say on the air what it is because he's kind of into medical privacy, but it's a, a terrible, terrifying diagnosis that remains terrible and terrifying. Uh, He's still alive. I'm grateful for that. But a lot of bad things have happened. And I was being very well supported uh, through that by my partner, the woman I share a life with. And she went into the hospital for what seemed to be fairly easy surgery and things went sideways. She then caught COVID while in recovery from surgery that had kind of gone tragically wrong, stayed in the hospital for 10 and a half months, uh, came very, very close to death three or four times, like for three or four completely different reasons almost, uh, and is is now out and and working on recovering and making kind of a miraculous recovery. But during that time, (laughs) I, I did, Kieran, sort of think, What do I have in my tool bag? You know, what exactly do I have in this little sort of scattershot uh, assemblage of a little bit of religious faith or religious interest and poetry and philosophy. And I guess it's sort of at those times, and you've had your own version of this uh, with your own chronic pain and, and other terrible illness in your family, where you just sort of wonder, okay, what's, what's in my quiver? What's in my toolbox? How do I get through this? And that's a lot of what this book is about. But, but maybe just begin by, in some kind of general way, addressing that question.
0: Wow. Well, I guess I have to start by saying I'm so sorry for what you and your family have gone through. And I, in a way, I I, I, uh, I feel like the, there's a, a kind of confession that that philosophy has its limits, and that there's, there's sort of a way in which I, I kind of think it will be a, it will be fake to suggest that there's a philosophical solution that's going to make everything okay. And in a way, that's the starting point for my approach to the, this topic: is acknowledging that life is hard and that what we should be aiming for is never a kind of perfection, the kind of perfection you see portrayed on social media or in people's typical kind of public portrayals of themselves, that that kind of ideal is unrealistic and, in fact, often quite damaging to hold ourselves up to, and that living well is always a matter of struggling. And the kind of times in our lives when we ask the question how to live are the ones when something is very difficult and we need guidance for getting through it. And that's where I think philosophy should be oriented.
2: Right. And some of it, I mean, this is a book, yours is a book very much about the human condition. And I wonder if part of this, part of survival, part of living well in hard times is acknowledging that this is the human condition. I, I uh, We're going to be talking about hope uh, in the final segment today, but I, I turned to Annie Lamott's book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Uh, she says, she's talking about hard times. She says, there were moments when I understood that there was nothing much I was going to understand or figure out. There was simply the present moment, awareness, impermanence, birdsong, love. There is no fixing this setup here. It seems broken and ruined at times, but it isn't. It's simply the nature of human life. I saw some mirroring of that sentiment in in your work too, Karen.
0: Well, I love that. Yeah, and I, I... I do think there's a tendency when you're first confronted with difficulty in your own life or in someone else's life to switch immediately into what I call assurance advice mode, where you say, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. Here's what you do. And that isn't, in fact, consoling. What, what It feels like a disavow, a kind of refusal to, to take in or acknowledge difficulty. And that the first step is just sitting with the present, with the fact that there may or may not be a solution. There may or may, may not be steps we can take. And that kind of acknowledgement and attention, it's both consoling in itself. It's, in fact, consoling to have someone just let you talk through what's difficult and acknowledge and take it seriously. But it's also a necessary precondition to any real guidance we can give. Because I think these are all difficulties where guidance, real guidance, takes the form of attention to the particular difficulty you're going through rather than some glib formula that you can sort of take off the shelf and just apply to you know, whatever it is you might be dealing with.
2: I, I also was struck by, in, in the chapter about infirmities, I think it's in that chapter, uh, a term I hadn't encountered before. It's a little bit clunky, but, but I can work with it. It comes from Ann Boyer. It's un-oneness. Uh, and and That's this notion, uh, and I, I find it very true in my own life and going through these own tra- my own travails, I mean, it's interesting, too, because you talk about Job uh, in the introduction. I thought about Job when all this stuff started happening to me. I thought about Job in a very sort of penetrating and somewhat, uh, you know, self-dramatizing way. But one thing I thought about Job was, yeah, he gets boils and he's scratching himself with a piece of pottery and stuff. But most of what happens really to Job is to the people around him uh, and to his family. Uh, and I mean, he loses everything that you can possibly lose. Um, and and I, I do think that there's... A lot of talk about how we're born alone and we die alone and stuff like that. But I don't think we really do much of anything else alone, if we can possibly avoid it. And, and I think that's running all the way through your book, that that everything involves other people.
0: Uh, no, absolutely. That in, in a way, when we think about what it means to live well, to have a good life, it's not just about our own personal happiness. It's about engaging with the world around us. And that means engaging with other people. I mean, and that's one way in which these moments of communication or acknowledgement and attention are consoling is that they are forms of human connection. I mean, not just chronic pain, but almost any kind of suffering is often exacerbated by the loneliness by the fact that you you tend to draw into yourself. And that makes it even harder and connecting with someone else, someone else sharing that things are difficult in their life that they've been through difficulties, which may not be the same as yours, already begins to make things Easier, I, I think, and I, I mean that term on oneness. Part of what I like about it is this suggestion of a, a kind of oscillation that people often feel. I certainly feel in dealing with difficulties in my own life, between the moments of self pity where I think, I look at other people's lives and think, "Ah, oh, you don't know how good you have it not to be dealing with chronic pain or you know grief or whatever it is that that you're going through at the time," and the the kind of pivot where you realize actually. I don't know what other people are going through. They could be going through so much worse. Like if you hadn't told me what was happening in your life, I would have blissfully assumed that everything was fine. And we're doing that with everyone around us. Often we're, we're kind of we're neglecting to make this pivot where we realize that other people's lives are hard, and that our own difficulties can be a, a pathway to to empathy and compassion for others.
2: Yeah, I, I want to – you know, it's interesting because I think we do go things together, through things together. But oddly enough, this weekend, while I'm reading your book uh, and reading about your chronic pain, my weekend was dominated by conversations about pain. My son ran into one of those little crossfires between a prescriber, uh, pharmacy, and insurance coverage where he temporarily didn't have the medication he uses to control his pain, uh, which meant that I was – talking to his mother about pain and talking to him about pain. Uh, And one thing that became clear to me is we can talk to each other about pain, but physical pain is something that you go through by yourself. I mean, nobody else, Bill Clinton notwithstanding, nobody else feels your pain uh, if it's physical. Uh, And this is something that that you've gone through pretty acutely too. Maybe can you say a little bit about how that might be different from from other things like grief and failure that are at least contextualizable?
0: Yeah, I I do think that there's this – the part of the difficulty of, of pain is that it traps you in your own body. I mean, so one of the things I, I think it, people often say that pain is hard to communicate about, and I think there are difficulties there. But actually, I, I think we are able to to describe what we're going through, and what we find when we describe why pain is difficult is that there's actually a lot to say about it, and in fact, even some there's a certain consolation in just in saying it that that it's not just pain, that's bad. But well, why is it bad? And one way in which it's bad is that it tends to kind of draw us into ourselves. Another way in which pain can be bad is that it makes normally our relationship to the world is pretty transparent. Like we, You don't have a sense of your own body often. You're just interacting with other people and things. Whereas in pain, you find that your the interface is kind of cloudy. Your, your, your body is is sort of the focus of your attention and it's hard to actually attend to other people to kind of get out of that that prison and pain is also difficult because it has a kind of temporality where it's you feel trapped in the present moment that the the it looks like you're never going to get out of this the future is very is is very limited it's very it feels like it's got the shadow of pain over it it's very hard to remember what it was like to be pain free and so on the one hand i think yes those are all ways in which pain Perhaps is in ourselves, and and is is less social than other kinds of difficulties in life. On the other hand, I think they're all things that we can communicate communicate about, and that communication, that articulating and understanding what we're going through, is is already, I think, to to begin on a path to a certain kind of consolation.
2: So um, we're going to talk in the second segment about some of the other chapters in your book, some of the other issues in your book. But just for a moment, I'd like to talk about you and the book itself. You know, um, you're probably aware that John Rawls at one point said the German philosophers like Marx and Kant and Hegel had one problem, which is a lot of their stuff was not very well written you're a beautiful writer and you're a painstaking writer. Uh, and the, your writing is um, accessible and And woven through your writing are, are references to, to literature and to real life and to just daily practice. Um, there's a way in which I think we think of philosophy sometimes. And I've listened to five questions and I know that you don't want to diss academic philosophy. I get that. <laughs> um, on the other hand, there's a way in which I think a lot of us think about philosophy as something that you would go and deal with in philosophy class, uh, and nowhere else. Uh, <laughs> there's a way in which it seems as though, rather than being life being shot through with philosophy, which I think is the reality, it, it seems instead to be kind of sequestered. Um, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, what you're trying to do here. Because there's obviously an attempt here, and you're not the only person doing it, obviously, but to say, no, 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 your life and philosophy are on parallel tracks
0: well that is absolutely central for me and i think i i mean i appreciate you saying nice things about the book part of what's going on there is is a sense of the porousness of the boundaries between philosophy and other kinds of writing like literature and memoir and that's because i i think you know there are many philosophical questions but one of the central ones and maybe the most unavoidable one is how should i live how should i live my life and that's a question we're all asking all the time whether we do it by reading philosophy or just by talking to friends about what's going on in our lives. And I think those two things are much more continuous than people often portray them as being. So a lot of of, of reflection on how to live takes the form not of coming up with some theory or slogan, but of just trying to describe what an experience is like in a way that helps us orient ourselves towards it. Like the way I was trying to do a little bit with pain, like what is it like to be in pain? Why is it so difficult? And that kind of description is, I think, a philosophical task, but it's very continuous with something we're doing all the time. When you know, we're talking to a friend and trying to figure out whether someone was being rude to us or just trying to being a little distant or whether they were you know, feeling anxious, those attempts to kind of capture the reality around us are forms of thinking about how to live that I think philosophers should be maybe more respectful of than they, than they sometimes are. And that when people are doing that, they're already closer to doing philosophy than they might realize. I think
2: another thing that's been really healthy lately Uh, in popular culture. I mean, obviously, we had a series called The Good Place. That was Michael Schur, who was already a moral philosophy freak going into this, despite being a very successful comedy writer as well. And so there's like this very almost academic tackling of philosophy and not just the, you know, the big names, but there's, you know, Derek Parfit and there's Scanlon's What We Owe Each Other and some very tough books. But I've also been re-watching lately, a very popular show right now. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Ted Lasso. Uh, it's about an American guy who gets brought over to England to be a soccer coach. He doesn't know anything about soccer. He doesn't know that somebody's trying to sabotage the soccer or football team, that he has uh, been asked to coach. Um, and he has this kind of very homespun, cracker barrel way of talking about things. But I've been noticing lately how many real, you know, sort of daily practice philosophical questions come up on this, uh, on this show. So I'm going to play a clip for you and have you react to it. Uh, I'll set it up by saying that what's happened at this point is a dog, a very popular, well-known dog, has died under very unusual circumstances. And Lasso is facing the British sports press who are just unbelievably hostile towards him. And they want to ask him a very uncomfortable question about what happened to that dog and why did that dog die? Uh, And Dylan, this is A1. Here's how he answers.
1: Well, when I was three years old, I got attacked by our neighbor's dog. I don't remember it happening, but my mother said it was pretty, pretty scary, you know. I do remember being afraid of dogs while growing up, though, like if I was at a friend's house for a sleepover or something, they'd have to keep their family dog outside, otherwise I'd bawl my eyes out. (laughs) (laughs) Then in high school, our neighbor, Mr. Grady, well his his wife passed away, and he was real sad about that, as you can imagine, and he just kind of stopped taking care of their dog. Same one that bit me. His name was Hank. And so I started looking after him, you know? Feeding him, taking him on walks, playing fetch, all that fun stuff. Eventually, Mr. Grady's son moved his dad into a nursing home and he asked if I wanted to keep Hank. And I was like, yeah, heck yeah. And then a year or so after that, we had to put Hank to sleep. It's funny to think about the things in your life that can make you cry just knowing that they existed can then become the same thing that make you cry knowing that they're now gone. those things come into our lives helps get from one place to a better one
2: so kieran uh said you react to that
0: well i did i love the show ted lasso especially the first season i thought was was kind of a, a sublime thing to watch during the pandemic i think i reacted to it the way a lot of people did and there is something very uh, there's, there's several things about that that really speak to me so one is I think that the the Ted character, Ted Lasso, attention to other people, the ability to listen to and pay attention to other people is sort of the driving ethical consciousness of the show. And and for me too, I think that's, that's sort of the key ethical moment is attention and sometimes to other people, sometimes to social or political issues around us. But paying attention is kind of a fundamental ethical imperative that I think the show really, really conveys. I think there's something else to say about that particular clip about grief, which maybe we'll get back to. The one thing I hesitate over, and this maybe connects with a certain kind of sentimentality that people sometimes find in the show, is that kind of hint towards the end that everything happens for a reason, that when something bad happens, there's bound to be some kind of positive lesson to be drawn from it. And I I think that's a temptation that that we, we really or to resist maybe this is part of the lesson of job going back to the, the reference you made earlier that sometimes the thing right thing to say that is not the way job's friends did there must be a reason why god is punishing you because god then says no they spoke they weren't telling the truth the truth is job there's no reason for this this isn't this isn't ultimately for the best and sometimes hard things happen and it's just hard and it, you know that's there's a little hint of sentimentality in the in the Ted Lasso show that that feels like it's denying that in a in a way that goes along with you know the power of positive thinking
2: yeah no i would i wouldn't disagree with that uh, i think another part of this and we're heading towards a break right now but it is storytelling which you mentioned several times in the book too that one thing that he does is take this little controversy out of a category, you know, and takes the situation out of the press grilling a coach and take all the kind of social politics out of it and say I'm just going to tell you a story. And and I I think we're we're wired that way, right? That's how we learn and understand a lot of things.
0: No, that's totally right. And I think, you know, I think this has its power and its dangers. There's the the power of of reframing things and drawing connections and kind of often in the case of grief, that's part of what happens is that we a relationship has now been ruptured and it has to change. But part of getting through that is thinking, this isn't just over, there's a new way in which I'm going to relate to someone who I've lost. And telling that story of how what role they have in your life and what role they can continue to have in their life now that they're gone is very important. On the other hand, I think there are also dangers to storytelling, I think, in relation to our own lives, where we sometimes get caught up in a, a kind of narrative of ourselves as if we're the hero of our own movie, and come to define ourselves by a kind of project or a mission in which we either succeed or fail. And that that kind of storytelling, where a single narrative line tends to drive things, can make us oblivious to the richness of life, the kind of array of things ar- around us that that really matter. And I think I think that's a a kind of side of storytelling that we have to grapple with and and kind of contextualize in our experience. All
2: right. I have so many things I want to say about that, but that was so brilliantly put too. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, This wonderful guest is going to stay with us all the way through the show. So we'll be back with Kieran. We're going to ask you to maybe uh, support this radio station and a show like ours, which we'll spend an hour talking about things like this. Nice people are going to tell you why you should.
1: What did you hear, my blue eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? I heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
0: Broken windows and empty hallways, a pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray. Human kindness is overflowing, and I think it's gonna rain today.
2: All right, we're back. Um, I want to talk about that song in just a second. Uh, but first of all, I want to reintroduce Kieran Setia, a professor of philosophy at MIT. His most recent book is Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. So we should say, first of all, that the book is divided up into chapters uh, about loneliness, grief, failure, absurdity, injustice, and then hope at the end. We're going to talk about hope at the end of the show today, but, um, There's a part of this song, which was written by Randy Newman, it's being sung by Nina Simone here, that goes, lonely, lonely, tin can at my feet. Think I'll kick it down the street. That's the way to treat a friend. And, And so Kieran... One of the chapters is about loneliness. We talked about pain as something that ultimately, you know, pain is sort of lived by the person. The person can be connected to other people during pain. Loneliness is also lived by one person, but it's different, right? The remedy seems in some ways ridiculously apparent. The remedy is other people. Um, And yet somehow or other loneliness really persists for a lot of people. Maybe you can say a little bit about how you take that
0: on. Well, I I do think there's a a kind of catch-22 in loneliness, which is that, you know, as you become lonely, there's a kind of suspicion and anxiety about social interaction uh, that makes it very hard to pull yourself out of, of that state of loneliness. And there's also a way in which connecting with other people, as you said, in a way, it's the obvious solution. On the other hand, connecting to other people in a way that's attentive to them and their needs, which is really what psychologists and I think philosophers too would suggest is the, is the way out of loneliness, is often counterintuitive or difficult because when you're lonely, what's most salient to you is your own need and, and the kind of hollowness in yourself. And you know that's painful because in a way, your own dignity, your kind of significance as a human being is not being recognized, but it's recognizing other people's dignity, recognizing their significance and forging that connection with them that is the is the way out. So I think loneliness is, is sort of a, a kind of it, it kind of builds on itself. It, it, it makes itself more more difficult. It's kind of a trap that way.
2: Um, yeah, there's – I think also getting out of a comfort zone. Sometimes your comfort zone and your loneliness wind up being kind of the same thing uh, and, and feed off of each other. And you you describe a woman in this book uh, who joined a basketball league even though she wasn't really as good as the other players in the basketball league. And it wasn't just going to be a natural fit. And maybe something about that effort to do something that didn't necessarily feel like part of her comfort zone is the beginning of kind of breaking that cycle.
0: No, I think I think that's right. In fact, some of the most kind of amazing kind of psychological research on this suggests that forcing yourself to have even brief, uncomfortable social interactions where you uh, attend to someone else, even if they don't lead to friendship or any sustained relationship, can make a difference to feelings of loneliness. So, one there was a, a very interesting study I think in Chicago where people were the, the the subjects of the study had to go up to a stranger on the train and ask them something about themselves, and tell them something about themselves. And they were naturally reluctant to do it, but they they went through it. And in almost every case, it went well. And it was this brief moment of connection. And people described the positive effects on their sense of social connection and, and diminishment of loneliness afterwards as quite significant, even though it was just this one kind of brief in that moment of connection, and I think what that brings out is that there's really a deep continuity between just the basic moral acknowledgement of other people as worthy of attention. It's continuous with the kind of profound connection, the kind of deep appreciation of another person that we associate with with deep love and friendship, and that you know they're different in degree, but they're not radically different in kind. They're both about the fact that people and you too really matter. So, I apologize, we're sort of speed
2: dating through the human condition here, but I have no (laughs) no other option. (laughs) Um, So... I want to talk a little bit about um, an idea that you bring up in your chapter about failure. and It's a terminology that I hadn't ever heard before, well, that makes a lot of sense, uh, and that is the idea, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, telic versus atelic activities. Uh, telic activities are done with a particular end in sight, a goal in sight. They are meant to come to an end, uh, whereas atelic, uh, as, as the word would suggest, are, are kind of the opposite. So. That's fascinating, first of all, and I'm going to be using it constantly and driving people crazy with it. But um, explain how you apply it to the idea of failure.
0: Yeah, well, so I, I think that this we tend quite often to become very telically oriented, sort of focused on projects, getting things done. It might be getting married, or it might be having kids, or it might be getting a promotion at work, or getting into a certain school, which is probably on the minds of a lot of uh, high school kids right now, and those are all telic activities and the the kind of deep problem with telic activities is it's not that they don't matter it's that you're always aiming at something in the future so it's not here yet which is frustrating and then the moment you have it well that's done what next and your way of engaging with a project or telic activity is basically to try and finish it so you're taking this thing that's meaningful and your relationship to it is well let's get that out of my life let's like, let's check that one off and there's something kind of self-undermining about that and not all activities are like that. There are also atelic activities like just going for a walk with no particular destination, or spending time with family or friends, or you know, talking about philosophy, where you know you're also you've got particular goals along the way, but what you value is just the ongoing process. And when what you value is just chatting about philosophy, you're not aiming at some future thing that you don't have yet. The thing you value is happening right now. And I think our relationship to success and failure is very different in those two cases. It's not that you can't kind of fail to engage in the atelic activities that matter to you, but you're not aiming at this final point where you either have to say, "Well, I did it," or "I failed."
2: Yeah, it's sort of like it's like it's like Baudelaire's idea of the flâneur, right? You're just you're, you're you're walking, you're enjoying the walking and the things that happen unplanned. I also thought of um, All, all of my references are cultural, Kieran, uh, of Abrams and Chariots of Fire. He's the sprinter who ultimately wins the gold medal, and we see him in the locker room, and he just appears utterly devastated because, in fact, that's the other part of T-Lick activities, right? It's You're like the We're back to dogs, you're back to the dog who cheeses the mail truck and then catches it one day. Uh, and That's yeah. <laughs> not, always, not always a great feeling,
0: right? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. It's one of these sort of weird paradoxes that you succeed in this thing you've been going for for ages, and then and you think Oh man, the void is in front of me. What next?
2: Um all right, so we're god, we're so tight on time here. I just want to maybe just spend one moment, you know, the things that we're talking about here and the way that we're talking about them. Uh or you're so wonderfully informed and the way that you bring culture into everything just, I don't know, pleases me so much. But I think a lot of people might be thinking, well, that didn't sound like philosophy to me. And there's a way in which philosophy and self-help probably for centuries and centuries were very much the same thing. I mean, Socrates seemed as interesting. I could almost say the Greek term, but there's a Greek term, to take care of yourself, which was, I think, as important to Socrates as the idea of know thyself, which is the only thing we really inherited from that tradition. But maybe just talk about this there is a way in which philosophy and self-help are not unintertwined
0: But no I think that it, really the idea of living well is central to philosophy and there's a lot of philosophical ideas not just in the history of philosophy but contemporary ones that can be helpful to people but the the habit as it were of connecting those two has really been atrophied and so that we're not really drawing those connections it, it can it's related to a way in which I think a lot of self-help has a rather narrow selfish focus. So it really is focused on your own personal feelings of happiness. And one way in which at least most philosophy has a slightly different vision is that the goal is, you might say self-help in the sense that it's you living well, but the vision of what it means to live well involves treating not just yourself, but people around you the way you should, trying to to live up to ethical standards. And I think if we thought of self-help as having that goal, it would be much clearer, that a lot of philosophy is relevant to self-help, and that the lines between them are not so uh, are not so sharp.
2: Yeah, I, I I think that's true. And there, you know, I went through a period where not too long ago, where I was going to church every Sunday, and people asked me why I was going to church every Sunday, and I said not necessarily because of, of a particularly doctrinal attachment to church, but because it was a pause where I thought about what it meant to be alive. What are we doing here? you know? And yes, what what do we owe each other? What I mean, and, and I think that's not priced into human activity if you don't have some kind of thing like that, either a spiritual practice or, or a secular version of a spiritual practice.
0: No, I, th- I think that's totally right. And I think if you don't, you know, this is a cliche, but it's true that there are many cultural pressures that incline us to be uh, focused on acquisition and kind of commercial in our vision of what success in life is like to be very focused on personal happiness and our own image in ways that are largely self-defeating and that you have to push back against that to get in view this larger topic of a good life and you know what you're describing is one way to do that but Reading and thinking about philosophy is another way to do it, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another break here. This is going way too fast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about hope. We don't want to shortchange hope, so that's the final segment. We'll be back with Kieran Setia then. I don't want to feel- Time to say two quick thank yous. One of them is to Dylan Rays, He's the technical producer on the show today. And the other one is to senior producer Lily Tyson. She's the producer of this episode as well. Our guest is Kieran Setia. His book is Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And we go through some uh, pretty uh, uh, scary territory uh, or daunting territory, as we have mentioned. But we wind up with hope. Although you begin, Kieran, with the point that uh, in Greek mythology, of course, Pandora's box empties out, with all the troubles of the world are sp- spread across uh, humankind, and hope uh, is kept on inside. It doesn't really seem to really work that way, or at least it doesn't balance the scales,
0: right? No, that's exactly right. So, in fact, there's something very puzzling about this story: is that you know the box is supposed to have all these terrible ills in it, and what, so why is hope in the box? Is hope supposed to be one of the terrible ills? But then of course it gets trapped in the box and doesn't get out, which makes you think, okay, maybe it was something good and the curse is that we don't get to have it. But then if it was something good, why was it in the box of ills? So there's this sense of ambivalence and confusion about hope that, you know, go back to Ted Lasso, you know, that, that it's the hope that kills you. There's a sense of hope as as something painful that if you hope for things you can risk disappointment on the other hand, we tend to think of hope as something good. So it's very hard to come up with a, a settled view about where hope stands.
2: Yes, just to be clear, we actually have that clip. We're not going to play it. But Ted Lasso says, uh, talks about how there's a saying about his team, it's the hope that kills you. And he says, no, uh, it's the lack of hope that uh, comes and gets you. Um, so, but I think hope. Hope is something we talk about a lot, but it's hard to exactly explain what it is. And I think what it is also varies across our our lives. Uh, Annie Lamott in that same book makes the point that... When we get old, when we're younger, we, I think we hope for a specific thing happening. You know, I hope this happens. I hope I get this. Uh, you get older and you just hope in a much more general way uh, about just family, friends. You know, Whitman has that prayer in old age. Thanks in old age. Thanks, there I go for health, the midday sun, the impalpable air for life, mere life. That's what you're hoping about, I think, as you get older. But maybe say a little bit more about how, how this plays
0: out for you. Well, I, I mean, I've always been kind of had this ambivalence about hope. And I think people who deal with chronic illness or the sort of long-term difficulties can can resonate with this, I think, which is you, you, for a while, pe- you keep chasing after a solution. And then each time you're like, this could be it. This doctor has the answer. And then they don't. And then you try the next doctor to have the answer. And then you think, you know, I should just stop hoping here. I should give up hope. Hope is really just making this worse. And so for a long time, I had that sense that, hope was just, it is the hope that kills you. I should just give up. I I think part of that is to do with a misconception of what hope is. Thinking in in sort of black and white terms as if the question to ask yourself is, should I hope or should I despair? And if you think in those terms, um, I think you're, you're sort of misconceiving the question. The question is always really, what should I hope for? And it's not that I really gave up hope. It's that I shifted from hoping for a cure to hoping for a way to go on living a good enough life, while just dealing with some difficult things at the same time that weren't going to change, and maybe that connects with the 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 the, um, the Anne Lamott and the Dickinson, the sense of hope—not uh, for some final solution in which it's all okay, but for finding a way amidst the difficulties of life.
2: Right. I, I think the other thing about hope is it's like everything else in your book. Hope is other people. Um, Hope isn't, I think, you know, at least for me, it isn't something that is a, a solitary activity. I'll give you one more lassoism, and then I'll promise I'll stop. But so my uh, my partner's daughter is named Hope, um, and uh, in the middle of these horrible crises, and so this is her mother's in the hospital for 10 and a half months. I'm living alone with a big, huge poodle, uh, and uh, one day she, she calls me up. And she goes, did you see it yet? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, walk around and look. And eventually I found over the door, jam of my bedroom, she or her her mother's and I our our bedroom, but she was gone from it for all this time. Uh, hope had put up this the sign. This is believe like it did Lasso. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and and but I thought I you I needed another person. You know I, I think it's very hard to hope alone. Somebody else. I think it, it it's so important to sort of have somebody else kind of reify that and validate it and say yes we are going to hope.
0: I think that's really fascinating. And I think it connects up with a, a, another theme that we we sort of kind of jumped around a little bit, which is the, the way in which I think justice and concern, sort of concern for other people in society is part of living well. But again, if you just sit around watching the news thinking, oh my God, it's terrible, and, don't, and stay by yourself, this is mostly a source of despair. It's when you connect with other people to do something, even something very small, but when it becomes a source of connection to act on the, this sort of sense of of urgency and, and crisis, then it becomes a source of hope. It becomes a, a kind of pathway into something more positive. So, again, there I think too that that other people are, are the, the the way to reorient ourselves from a perspective in which the world is oppressive to one in which we can find possibility.
2: I think we've invented a word for the th- kind of contemplation you're describing, I think. We call it doom scrolling now because it's something you do by yourself on your phone. You are using your thumb just to push information past yourself. And during during the pandemic, during uh, troubled political times, uh, and lots of other troubles, there's been a way in which we isolate with this device that pretends to be another person. Uh, and it seems to me that's a little bit of what you're describing
0: there too. No, absolutely. And I think the same dilemma that comes up that I felt in my personal life about hope comes up there, which is it's very easy to find yourself reading a depressing story and thinking despair. And then there's there's a story where, you know, a news story about something good happening. You think, oh, hope. And you just flip back between these two poles where a, a kind of more realistic and much more productive relationship is to ask, well, what could I hope to do? And it's going to be something it's going to be kind of a gray area of little incremental things you can do always in connection with other people. But if you're asking that kind of question, you get off this, this sort of oscillating uh, kind of uh, doom scrolling um, kind of narrative on which it, it's either hope or despair and nothing in between. It's all you know, I, I think usually the the reality is, well, there's something could be better and something could be worse.
2: I think hope, you make this point, I think hope has to be yoked up to action, too. Uh, in other words, you, you can't just sit in there hoping for something. Um, you're, you're, you're paralyzing yourself in a different way. And it's hope scrolling instead of doom scrolling. You, you, I think you have to make some kind of resolution to do something.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is, I think, why in, in Hesiod and in the story of Pandora, why the Greeks might have thought of hope as something, uh, as a hardship, as a kind of curse, is that if you think of hope as just sitting there hoping it will all work out then this is not good. It's it's at best a precondition of action. So I think it's always it's good to, in, in terms of hoping well. I think it is crucial to remember that hope is is a kind of starting point, a precondition for the action that, that is what really matters. All
2: right. We're going to stop there. But Kieran, uh, Sadia, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. The book is Life is Heart, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Come back. You don't have to write another book. You can come back anytime you want. Uh, we'll just hang out. But I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too.
0: That was great to talk to you. Thanks so much.
2: All right. Let's go out with a little uh, Jason Isbell, shall we? Uh, And then we get some people asking you to support the show.